first reading this morning is from Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 1 to, t- to 22. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the provinces has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile with suffering and hard servitude. She now lives among the nations and finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the festivals. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her young girls grieve, and her lot is bitter. Her foes have become the masters, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has made her suffer for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From daughter Zion has departed all her majesty, Her princes have become like stags that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was no one to help her, the foe looked on mocking over her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, so she has become a mockery All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Her downfall was appalling, with none to comfort her. O Lord, look at my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Enemies have stretched out their hands over all her precious things. She has even seen the nations invade her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter into your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, Lord, and see how worthless I have become. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire. It went deep into my bones. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He left me stunned, faint all day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand that were fastened together. They weigh on my neck, sapping my strength. The Lord handed me over to those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all my warriors in the midst of me. He proclaimed a time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my courage. My children are desolate, for the enemies have prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should become his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. 
The Lord is the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and behold my suffering. My young women and young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, and they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while seeking food to revive their strength. See, O Lord, how distressed I am. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They hear how I was groaning with no one to comfort me. All my enemies heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced and let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. My groans are many and my heart is faint. Our second reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 27. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what that is who for who hopes for what is seen but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we ought but that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words and god who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Amen. So today is the first Sunday in Lent, the 40 days leading from Ash Wednesday to Holy Week, a period of preparation for the Easter commemoration and celebration. And during those Sundays, the, the five Sundays between now and Palm Sunday, we're going to work our way through the book of Lamentations. Not a book we often read or hear preached on in our tradition, but in the long tradition of the whole church, it has one, it is one that has been regularly used as part of Lent and Holy Week readings and reflections. It's a book that from very early in the church's encounter with scripture has been associated with grief and the distress that's part of the Holy Week reflection. And I went on Wednesday to an Ash Wednesday service at one of our local parish churches, and sections of that book set to music were part of the liturgy. The call, the, the reproaches, as they're known, inviting the congregation to look at sadness and grief of the one calling them. 
that phrase, is it nothing to you, all those who pass by? It's even actually in our own hymn book, a hymn for Good Friday, using that phrase, is it nothing to you, all those that pass by? That verse that Libby read. We may not preach on it or read it often, but it has been a staple part of the listening and preaching and remembering of the church at this time for years out of mind. Gregory, who was one of the great preachers of the early church, preached on it. Francis preached on it. Even our own Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century preached on it. So, over the next few weeks, we are going to spend some time with these poems. Because that's what it is. It's a collection of poems, traditionally believed to have been written by Jeremiah, though contemporary research suggests that while in the form that we have it, it has been put together by a writer into a coherent whole, Actually, it's made up of several poems from, with several different patterns, probably written by several different people, perhaps even in different contexts. Probably, therefore, not Jeremiah. But whoever has collected and edited it, what we now have is a gathering and collating into one piece of poems of great power, great depth, to form a book of deep encounter. And of course, although I've been saying something about its place in the tradition of Christian preaching, especially in Lent, it's part of the Jewish scriptures, and it's used in that context very significantly. As a whole, the book is read every year in one sitting, as part of the services that commemorate the destruction of the temple, that loss of the center of identity and worship and meeting with God that destroyed the nation. And that liturgical use, which is part of what has determined the Christian liturgical use of the book, that demonstrates that even if the actual historical details are a little hazy, this is a collection, a whole poem, that belongs to and emerges from the time of the greatest destruction of biblical Israel's history, what we call the exile. It's easy for us to forget the impact of the exile on the sense of the self of the nation of Israel. Easy for us to forget, but for the first followers of Jesus, and indeed for Jesus, it was as central an event as it was for the Jewish people at the time and ever since. The exile was the complete collapse of all that had defined and sustained them as a people and in their faith. History briefly told the nation of Israel, under pressure from various larger nations, had made military alliances with others. And under pressure from Assyria, when uh, Assyria came conquering, the alliances didn't hold. And Assyria conquered, and the city of Jerusalem was taken, and the country around Jerusalem, the part of Israel historically known as Judah, was overrun. The king escaped from the city, but was captured and taken into exile in Babylon, along with, estimates of the numbers vary, but along with a significant proportion of the city's population, and certainly all of the elite, the political and the financial and the religious leaders of the city. And those who were left behind were left with a ruined city, with no infrastructure, no temple, and no hope. And Jeremiah was one of those whose words from that time have remained alive for us. And we can read in his writings, in the book of Jeremiah, something of the bewilderment and the despair. Because as well as the sheer horror of the military destruction, there was the existential, absolutely fundamental desolation that came with the sense that God had abandoned them. The conviction that Jeremiah articulates that the people held prior to this was that Jerusalem, and in particular the temple where God had promised to dwell, would never be taken 
The city could never fall because God was with them, and so they could not be defeated. And then they were. And Jeremiah went with those who went to Babylon. And in much of the book of Jeremiah, what we read is the struggle of people to try and make sense of it. That's why Lamentations has traditionally been associated with Jeremiah. Lamentations forms the expression of the distress of the people who were left behind. And through the book, there are basically two voices, and we've heard them both this morning, the voice of the narrator and the voice of the city. The narrator is cast as a man, the city as a woman. That's why they read it the way they did this morning. And Lady Jerusalem is the standard presentation of the city, not just in this book, but in various parts of the story of Israel. And here she's given a voice to speak of her horror and her fear, her pain and her despair. And the narrator is looking at the city and at what has happened and is telling it and expressing it. And the poem is in the form of an acrostic. Each verse begins with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The overall form of the poem is somewhere between a dirge, like the ones that were sung at funerals, and a lament, the form we see in the Psalms, where individuals or a community stand before God, cry out their pain, demand God's intervention. The chapter we heard this morning, the first part, which is mainly the voice of the narrator, is roughly a dirge. It's similar in form to what would be sung at a funeral. And the second, the voice of the city, is mainly lament. Various themes of the book, and we'll cover them in a variety of ways over Lent. Issues of anger and judgment will come up. Questions of undeserved or inappropriately huge suffering. Themes around how scripture is used liturgically and theologically. And how as followers of Jesus we read it. The relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament accounts are always complex for Christians. Apart from anything else, there's the whole history of anti-Semitism in some of the ways in which Christians have dealt with the text, and we need to be alert to that. Apart from that, there is the question of how we read this book in particular. For it will have to be said this is bleak. There is little in the way of hope present in these texts. And how do we, as we approach Easter and the promise of resurrection, read a text in which God seems not to be acting in the way we are committed to believing God acts if we take the story of the resurrection seriously as a disclosure of who God is. So there's another question we need to ask as we approach the poems and listen to their words. And you know, I can keep this up all day. This is all very important stuff as we try and read a text that's strange to us and unknown to most of us. And I can go on and I can give you a detailed analysis of the verse form and the structure. And I can explore the historical context of the various distresses referred to in the separate verses. And I can tell you more about the history that's being evoked in the images, the very careful way in which those images are controlled, and the historical and the rhetorical traditions that are being used. I can do that. I'm a good teacher. I can write a good lecture. Sometimes when I preach, my feeling and my emotion and my passion come through. And it's not unknown for folk who listen to me regularly to comment that they appreciate that, and even to ask why I don't do it more often, and why I don't let my feelings show more clearly. Well, there are several answers to that. The pulpit is not the place for a self-indulgent expression of private emotion. And I'm a very introverted person, and I'm not comfortable with offering my feelings for public scrutiny. And, And perhaps this, for me, is the most important aspect I can't bear to encounter and express deep feelings, especially deep feelings of distress. I can't bear to have to own them. 
during the last week, some of us went to an event to raise money for the United Nations um, High Commission for Refugees. It's very well done, very carefully put together series of little sketches and songs and recitations. Some were very funny, some were classical. We heard the speech from Shakespeare's play Sir Thomas More in which Sir Thomas calms a riot against the strangers with an impassioned plea for the welcome to the refugee. And one or two pieces where there were imaginative voices drawing on real, voice, real stories of what's happening to the refugees. I was absolutely destroyed by the end. Not because I learned anything I didn't know, and not that I heard any fact or any truth I'd been ignorant of. It was because by their skill and their performance, those who were presenting it brought me face to face with the real people who are really having to pack one case and decide what to take and what to leave and who are really watching out of the window until the moment comes that the soldiers are so close they know they can't stay any longer and so they're escaping through their plea planned routes with no idea of where they'll go. And people who are really watching the boat beside theirs go under and nobody come up again. The real people, not the figures, not the graphs, not the faceless crowds I've seen on the news reports. It's a similar experience to the one that Jean brought to us when she, we Skyped her when she was being a um, an accompanier in Palestine and she was talking about standing at the checkpoints and talking about taking children to school under gunfire and at one point actually had to go away in the middle of the conversation do you remember that Jean? Because something was happening and it was real people it was a similar experience to listening to Kathleen last week talk about young men in their teens wanting an education but not being able to have it because they've had to leave their certificates behind they wouldn't fit in the suitcase real people Come this afternoon to our Lent session and hear about real people. And most of the time I can't bear it. And I hide. I hide behind the political campaigning, which is important, which changes things, which really matters. And I hide behind the righteous indignation, which is justified, and our hypocritical power brokers need to be called to account. And I hide behind my own, I am too small and can't change anything. And therefore, I don't have to pay attention. And when I read Lamentations and encounter scripture, I hide. I hide behind the history and the literature and the need to teach the background because you don't know it and to explain the structure and even my delight in the beauty of the verse because it is wonderful. And I hide from the real people in this poem who lived in a city that was raised and the children who were killed and the women who were raped and who are still living in this world and who are real human beings like me with the same capacity as I have for hope and fear and love and despair and getting up and going to bed. And I hide from the call, the stark call of this poem to recognize the despair. And I hide from the darkness in my own heart. I was joking with people about preaching on lamentations. This is real give up and die stuff. There is no hope in these verses. It's not that God is not there, but God is not there as hope or comfort or reassurance or all the things we assume and depend on God being. And this book, this poem, if I dare, if we dare hear it speak to us as the word of God will not let us hide. We cannot hide from the real people really dealing with real horror. We cannot hide behind history and behind academic understanding and even behind political activity. We cannot even hide behind religious practice and faith. Here is the summons of this poem. 
if we let it speak to us as the word of God. It is to the kind of honesty that we cannot usually bear and which everything in our culture and our society conspires to protect us from. Traditionally, this text is read in Lent. Traditionally, as a way of getting to grips with the reality of the cross. And there are significant issues, and we will come to them, about wrath and suffering and how we hear that in the context of cross and resurrection and renewal. But there is more. Lent is traditionally the time for giving things up. There's all sorts of theories and assertions about why that matters. But one of them, surely, is that we take the chance to uninsulate ourselves from our own experience and the experience of the world. We can protect and hide ourselves away from the pain of real people in real situations very easily. We can even, without much effort, blanket ourselves against our own pain, our own loss and guilt. We can be very busy. We can be completely taken up by other people's needs. We can hide in drink or drugs or sex or gambling or spending or earning or even worrying or even being religious. And the tradition of self-denial in Lent is about stripping away all that we use to hide behind and being honest with ourselves before God and honest with God. Honest about pain and about sin, about shadow, about alienation. And these words, if we can let them, if we will listen to them and not hide behind all the apparatus of our understanding and our research, all the distancing techniques of living in our heads and hiding our hearts, these words will strip away our insulation and expose us to the stuff we usually try to ignore. And that may not be comfortable, but it is Lent, and there is a reason. At the heart of this poem in the first chapter is the sense of being abandoned, in verse 2, among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. In verse 9, her downfall is appalling with none to comfort her. And followed up with her own cry, Jerusalem, Jerusalem's own cry, O Lord, look at my affliction. Is it nothing to you? And then towards the end, they heard how I was groaning with no one to comfort me. It's the most repeated image through the whole poem. Abandonment. Nobody to comfort. To be in pain. Existential, physical, social is bad enough. Not to have that pain recognized or witnessed somehow increases it. That is abandonment. That nobody sees that this matters. To witness another's pain can sometimes be the best gift we can offer. We become anxious that we can't help if we meet somebody who's struggling. And if we're truly honest, there are times, many times, when our drive to help somebody is... It's genuine and it's full of concern, but it's also the deep need in us to get out of the way of that pain and that distress and our own powerlessness and reinvest in our insulation. But if we truly listen uninsulated to somebody, often what pain needs is to be heard, to be seen, to be acknowledged, and that can make it more bearable. The agony of too many people today is that nobody notices that the world has forgotten and their story is not seen or is denied or trivialized and they are abandoned. And when we feel helpless in the face of need or driven to do something, anything, it's worth remembering. All sorts of things may be required of us, but perhaps this above all else, 
that we see and come face to face with the truth of pain and suffering and bear witness to it. But the poem calls us further. It calls us into the experience of abandonment, or it calls us to acknowledge the experience of abandonment. When we come in a few minutes to share bread and wine, we will hear the words again. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. While we share this, we are as we are here and now in the in-between, in what we might identify as Holy Saturday, that time between the cross and the fulfillment of the promise that's given on Easter Day. And Lamentations is a Holy Saturday text. It's the text of being without hope because hope has gone and resurrection is inconceivable. It's the poem, the cry of the dark tomb when there is nowhere else to go. The groan that is the time of being held in corruption and not yet seeing the promise. It's the desolation of there being no hope and no possibility and no future. And I believe that that is how we can hear and how we can speak these words, because they speak to us of the reality of a world in which resurrection is not yet, in which all creation groans. And they speak for us, as the Spirit speaks for us when we cannot pray, in groans too deep for words. The groans of pain and frustration and anger and agony, of guilt and despair, that if we will choose not to hide, is part of being human in the world. And they can speak to us of this, and they can speak for us of this. That sense of being abandoned that Jesus expressed on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It is there. It is part of the story. And we know it. It's too easy to reach quickly for the hope and the promise of resurrection as if it was the most natural thing in the world. Resurrection is not a natural act. It is not the expected end of a difficult story, but signposted all the way. Resurrection comes exactly when it can't, when there is no hope, and when abandonment is complete. And if we try to bypass it and to get out of the abandonment by denying it in the world or in ourselves, we will have only a facile, happy ever after ending, not the fulfillment of the promise of God. To groan in despair and loss, in abandonment and fear, is to experience God as not there. And that is not faithlessness, and it's not unbelieving. It is standing with Jesus. It is to stand in the truth of being part of what creation is still subject to. The futility. And for that to be the truth, or to recognize that when that is our truth... It's a truth we are allowed to own and we do not need to deny and we can groan because that is the prayer of the people of God. It is the prayer of the Spirit. As we listen to Lamentations this Lent, here is the invitation. Get real. Put off the insulations that keep us safe from the challenges of pain and distress and agony in the world. Not because suffering is a good thing, but because then we can, with integrity and commitment, enter into the groaning of the world and of our own struggle as we long for and look what is, for what is given in miracle, not through our effort or our deserving, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Amen.
for gift and promise, for hope and healing, we bring you our thanks, O God. But as we share the richness of your table, we cannot forget the rawness of the earth. We cannot take bread and forget those who are hungry. For your world is one world, and we are stewards of its nourishment. Put our prosperity at the service of the poor. We cannot take wine and forget those who are thirsty. The ground and the rootless, the earth and its weary people crying out for justice. Put our fullness at the service of the empty. We cannot hear your words of peace and forget the world at war, or if not actually fighting, then preparing for it. Show us how to turn weapons into welcome signs and the lust for power into a desire for peace. We cannot celebrate the feast of your family and forget our divisions. We are one in spirit, but not in fact. History and hurt still divide your church. Heal the church of its brokenness. We cannot receive the gifts of your life without recognizing the brokenness in our own lives. We remember before you family and friends about whom we are worried because they are ill, they are in distress, or there are broken relationships. And we acknowledge before you our own brokenness. The darkness we hide and deny. The pain we want to get rid of. The anxiety we project onto others. Lord, in your mercy, hear and heal us that we may learn to live in the light of your promise and not the chains of our sinfulness. Lord Jesus Christ, you have put your life into our hands, so now we put our lives into yours. Take us, renew and remake us. What we have been is past. What we shall be through you still awaits us. Lead us on and take us with you. Amen.